The maximization of awesomeness is a call to the cultivation of flourishing ecosystems on every scale. What is an ecosystem? Well, normally when I think of an ecosystem, my mind goes to an image of a lake or a marsh, some frogs, bugs, fish, flora, and fauna, all in some sort of balance. I think of ways small changes can affect whole ecosystems. Too much algae and fish die and smell. Add fertilizer to a nearby field and plants may grow, but the fertilizer in the field may affect that marsh. What does the word ecosystem make you think of? There are other types of ecosystems, ecosystems of justice, for example. The word economy has the same root as ecosystem. Make a small change in an economic system, like raising the cost of insurance or providing a stimulus, and it can have very dramatic effects. Today, we're going to set out on a journey towards a balanced ecosystem of theories. Economic theories, moral theories, religious and cosmological theories. Our goal will be to explore how even competing theories can work together to maximize awesomeness. We're going to begin where we left off last time, talking about women's rights. In the coming episodes, we'll be talking some more about sexual and reproductive freedom, as well as same and other sex issues as they've been treated throughout history. In discussing their pros and cons, we'll be establishing a theory of theories as we go. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. Particularly in the West, a lot of sexual oppression and abuse is blamed on religion. The idea that man is a type of primate whose species, Homo sapiens, came into being about 200,000 years ago in a Paleolithic era has been rejected by fundamentalists in the Judeo-Christian traditions as a demonic lie. Humans aren't animals, they'll insist. I won't be addressing the creationist controversies here, ever. Instead, I'm going to find the pros and cons in each paradigm as I reconcile irreconcilable visions with the multiverse. That means, to begin with, that I'll entertain the theory of Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha that man is more closely related to the chimpanzee and Bobono than the chimpanzee and Bobono are related to any other primate, including the ape. Ryan observes that chimpanzees mate an average of four times an hour during estrus, with up to 12 males per day. A female in estrus seeks sex, probably not thinking about why, because their opportunity to reproduce is highest during that time frame. It serves the survival of the species. Chimps have frequent sex with multiple partners about 40% of the month. Babonos, 90%. Humans, a hundred percent. Now, Ryan's theory is that we're more like the highly promiscuous Bobono than we are the relatively monogamous Gibbon, with whom we share much less common DNA. As a result, we shouldn't feel so ashamed that we so often have sexual thoughts that might betray our marital partners. We should consider open relationships. There are lots of gay and bisexual chimps, too. According to Ryan, if we have same-sex tendencies, we shouldn't feel guilty about that either. We should accept ourselves 
the way that we are. We need to consider the full implications of that assumption. According to Ryan, humans had no sense of monogamy during the better part of the Paleolithic age. It wasn't until the Neolithic era when we transitioned from hunter-gatherer tribes to settling on farms that monogamy ever became a thing at all. For some perspective, that's just the last 5% of the history of Homo sapiens. If we're naturally adapted to a hunter-gatherer tribal lifestyle, since that's 95% of our history as a species rather than an agrarian one, what does that actually mean for us? What exactly is the difference between the Paleo and Neolithic periods? If we accept Ryan's speculations, hunter-gatherer tribes cross-bred with competing tribes whenever given the opportunity. Sharing among clans was a matter of what he calls forced egalitarianism. It was just a good habit. It's how you survive when you're a foraging people. Certainly food and basic goods were shared among tribes to keep peace, right? How about sharing some of that woolly mammoth instead of wasting all the leftovers in the fire, huh? Presumably, sex was no different. It was shared too. There would have been genetic reasons as well for wanting to share. In fact, one sex historian, Ray Tannehill, said that our need for survival always inclined us away from sex with the family towards variety, making incest what she called the first taboo. Common among many mating habits of mammals, we rejected incest before we ever knew why. Same-sex relations were about as useful as incest and adolescent pederasty ever were. In our sexual zeal, they often happen, but the genes that inclined us to that kind of behavior serve very little purpose for our survival. Along with the evolution of hominids during that period was the evolution of language. The historical record begins with what we can discern from the bones and tools that we dig up, then the paintings that we've found, and also in the last half of the Neolithic age anyway, then we would start to find some writing. We suppose that our brains were evolving to come up with those sorts of technologies, but the archaeological record shows that our brains have actually been shrinking. They're down 10% in size over the past 40,000 years. We think we're smarter because of the technology, but technology arose through improving communication in an age of population growth. We were increasingly less alone, increasingly more social, and socially interdependent. It was population growth that brought on the age of agriculture and commerce, not smarts. It was the size of our population, not the size of our brains, that introduced us to this wonder of capitalism and to the ownership of property that could only be seized by the enemy or traded. Once the rules were established, that brought on some peace, but it was by necessity, not necessarily because it was an improvement. The world changed. Men formerly hunted wild game, and they became vital, maybe in times of scarcity. But other than that, the hunting and gathering that the women did was sufficient, and they were in control of the kids. They were the ones with the bosoms and the nurturing. Everything centered around them, and if you think about it, the men didn't even know that they were the fathers, because they didn't know that sex had anything to do with reproduction and making babies. So, in the agricultural age, animals had to be tamed, and so did women. Things change. And that's how the theory goes. The Neolithic age, agriculture and capitalism brought on patriarchy and slavery. It's a very recent phenomenon. It was property. It was settlement. 
The physically strong ruled the physically weak. As civilizations grew, this new tradition of viewing women and children as property grew with it. Social conventions arose, gradually writing patriarchy into the laws of the various nations that were forming city-states. Contrast that with the state of man before agriculture and commerce. Prior to the knowledge that sex made babies, there was no sense of paternal responsibility. A woman was naturally in charge of the clan. The words, my son, had no meaning. But when women came to be understood as vehicles for reproduction in the context of farming, they were like dirt. The power of fertility was in the seed. It was in the man. Progeny worked farms. It had value if it could do work, producing more. No one understood that better than the Hebrews, whose 613 Old Testament laws consistently promoted reproduction and condemned behavior that skirted it. Whether Onan's sin was masturbation, coitus interruptus, or a failure to honor his obligation to father children for his sister-in-law after his brother's death, God's judgment of Onan was his sin against reproductive obligations. If you don't know who Onan was, read Genesis 38. But the Hebrew law didn't stop the Hebrews from having sex with prostitutes. And if it wasn't prostitutes, many wives and concubines were accepted. Remember Solomon's 700 wives and over 300 concubines? In the days of the early patriarchs and kings, at the least, it was all okay. And that may have lingered on. Other cultures were sexually liberated in comparison to the Hebrews, I suppose. In the Orient, same-sex activity was socially accepted as it was in Greece and Rome. In Taoism, the male yang is strengthened by resisting orgasm. There was a combination of spirituality and sex. Sex was a spiritual exercise. The Hindu Kama Sutra also seeks to cultivate sexual energies for spiritual union with the divine. There's little sense of guilt and shame, as you might find in the West. But that doesn't mean that women were treated as equals after the agricultural age started over there, either. It was agrarian commerce that in almost every culture was relegating the role of wife to that of a child-bearer, appreciated for little else than for reproduction, for nurturing of children, and for housekeeping. Women who didn't wish to be oppressed sometimes found prostitution a form of advancement. Japanese geishas were highly respected, in fact, for their worldly knowledge, not just their sexual expertise. Babylonian harimtu advanced themselves as sacred prostitutes. The Egyptians' priestesses, the naditu, they were literate, while the Hebrew wives weren't. The Greek hetere were highly admired temple prostitutes as well worthy of joining the men's only clubs. Roman wives might have been an exception. They had some rule over the properties they held, but men were permitted to have sex with anyone while the women had to keep their dallyings more discreet, especially after the moral reforms of Augustus, who set the pace for the Roman Empire in 27 BC. In all of this, homosexuality and promiscuity among men was morally neutral. In Greece, Sex with young boys had been normal in the symposium, so long as the young aspirants were pubescent. Not that there weren't abuses of those that were younger. 
Sexual activity between women was also accepted. The island of Lesbos is where we get the term lesbian. But that wasn't about sex so much as it was about poetry, some of which suggests some women-to-woman love. Women were known for their intelligence, and that appears to have been the main attraction of Lesbos. Love among females was widespread, but lesbian acts were increasingly condemned in the first century with the rise of the Gnostic anti-materialism that started to pervade the Roman Empire. So to understand how Christianity, and Islam in particular, became misogynist, some understanding of Gnosticism is going to be needed here. With Gnosticism, in its many forms, the material world was considered a deterioration, a distortion, impure, poisonous to the attainment of spiritual knowledge from which we had fallen. The flesh was denounced. I think Gnostic anti-materialism is best explained as an anti-Greek experience in an age of Roman power and conquest. Here's what I mean. Well, it may well have been true that our tendency as Homo sapiens was to act like the promiscuous Bobono. The superstitious Romans were on an ego trip, seeking spiritual superiority over those that they had conquered, renounced the flesh, everything about it, especially sex, Then, being weak-minded, they despised their women and anything weak. Oddly, their own desire was perceived as a weakness. Weak-minded people, they treated their wives as scapegoats when the suppression of sexual instinct proved futile. Add to this sort of heavy guilt trip the fact that this moral progress or superiority was supposed to please the gods. Failure to transcend the flesh meant being guilty of the fall of the Roman Empire by its enemies or for calamities like at Pompeii in 78 AD, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. The Caesars, instead of taking blame and owning up to their own responsibilities, blamed the Roman citizens rather than themselves. And when the Roman Empire spread out to Constantinople, to the east in the early 4th century, the Roman anti-Hellenist, anti-materialist inclination compounded Christian attitudes against the flesh. It was spread out everywhere. It was because of this neo-Gnostic bent that the later church presumed that the Apostle Paul was single by choice, as if being married itself was a bad thing as well. In reality, when he suggested that others be single as he was, he is most probably addressing widows as a widower himself. I doubt he would have qualified to be a member of the Sanhedrin if he'd been unmarried. I'm pretty certain he was speaking to the unmarried generally in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, as well as to the widows. In saying, tis agamis que tes gires, to the unmarried and to the widows, two ancient translations actually have tis gires, to the widowers here. He was referring to himself. I think he was dealing with the question of whether widows and widowers should marry, plain and simple. Anyway, if Paul wasn't as pro-celibacy as Catholics later made him out to be, Gnostic anti-materialism still permeated the Christian ethos. Women and children were very much the property of the head of the household, which was always the husband and the father. It may well be true that the husband was to give himself to his wife just as the wife was to give herself to her husband. It may also be true that the husband was subject to Christ, just as the wife was subject to her husband as to Christ. But in real-world terms, she was on the bottom rung of the totem pole with their children, and he was probably not much of a Jesus. I'm talking about some weak-minded people here, right? 
Subjection and abuse remained typical, whether it was couched in Christian terms or not. If Jesus was more tolerant of adultery than the Jews before him, it wasn't a matter of being more lenient in his teaching either. He may have said nothing specifically about things like masturbation or homosexuality, but he seems to have sided with the other rabbis of his day in saying that even thinking about someone other than one's own spouse was an adulterous act. In practice, some took that very seriously. The early 3rd century Christian expositor Origen, for example, was probably among the many who castrated himself before the practice was outlawed in 325 AD. Christian sexual suppression gets worse. However serious suppression of women in the church may have been, homosexuality always seems to be singled out as the ultimate abomination before God. Talking to today's evangelicals, we might think it's the only type of sin God gets really mad about. To call something an abomination, you've really got to detest it. Abomination has such an onomatopoetic sound. But hold on. Long before Paul used that word, the writer of Proverbs was describing a God who found haughty eyes an abomination. That's it. All you needed to do was be arrogant and proud or having a lying tongue, and you were in God's ultimate doghouse, locked outside of the kingdom for all eternity. Never mind the murderers, you were an abomination. It was easy to be considered depraved and deplorable. No one needed to commit a single gay act to get that name, to be judged that way. The idea of an angry God and one who condemns everything that's material as fallen and rotten seems to go hand in hand. Before St. Benedict started inflicting wounds on himself to tame his inner beast, and before Christians cooled themselves in tubs of ice or whipped themselves to drive out their evil thoughts, the Gnostics had invented a Jesus that was born as an adult and who didn't actually suffer when he was crucified. It was anti-materialism. Some Gnostic Christians said Jesus wasn't really even human. He was God, appearing human only. God was separate from man. And with that ever-widening gap between God and man, it wasn't long before Martin Luther singled out one passage of Paul. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. He wasn't alone. John Calvin subsequently built the institutes of the Christian religion on two words, total depravity. Never mind that if there was none righteous, not even one, that that would have included Jesus, too. That there was nothing good in man at all was the prevailing Christian mindset everywhere a person turned, whether in the Catholic self-flagellation or to the Protestant disdain for intermediaries. It follows that women were the worst among men, of course. In such an atmosphere, it shouldn't be surprising so many would be burned at the stake, accused of witchcraft if they offered a single word of criticism. Men couldn't face their own sin. Adam had to blame Eve. Egotistical mindsets continued to exist in man despite the benefits of religion. She offered the brunt of the self-abuse. Homosexuals, of course, those don't even count. They were all burning in hell anyway, I guess, right? So what can we learn from all of this? What theory of justice can help here? Is there anything good that we can draw from all of these sordid facts from our history? I think there is. First off, it's obvious that the love 
and the mercy of Jesus is missing in this very depressing picture. If maximized awesomeness is true, we could safely look for a more welcoming God, one who doesn't hate everything about us. The idea of an angry God is something that we can attribute to human imagination and projection. The intolerance of sin doesn't need to be confused with anger and condemnation. The picture of the multiverse that I've shared up until now has involved a two-step process to do away with the sin problem through the maximization of awesomeness. So let's review that. In step one, we find evil and find ourselves responding to it in every possible good way, so that every good act of our free will can be part of reality. In step two, we realize that the evil itself, to which we may have responded, wasn't actually there in the first place. It was somehow illusory, something uploaded to our minds, a figment of our imagination. Even the things we think we ourselves have done, we didn't actually do them. They're illusory memories. We are not sinners. We are points of light and grace, sharing in the glory of God timelessly, reborn as heirs of glory. We recognize this point secondarily, treating sin and evil as if it were real. Such would be the love and goodness of God that sin and evil should be removed from us as far as the East is from the West, so that it never happened. It sounds like an imaginary theory, la-la land, of course, I know that, but I repeatedly showed why this had to be true if maximized awesomeness was true throughout the beginning of season one, and I'm not going to repeat that here. Go back and listen to the first episodes. I proved maximized awesomeness is true also in Pomology 101. I'm going to be redoing that course for you so it'll be a little bit easier on the eyes. Second, given these first step constructs, it's possibly true that there's no way to overcome the inclination to break our diets until our appetites have been curbed, whether it's food or sex that we're talking about here. Beating each other up if we fail isn't going to help. And a third point, the idea that God will condemn us as a nation because we fail to curb our appetites that way, that really isn't fair. Whether we blame a carnal nature or DNA that's similar to the promiscuous Bobono doesn't really matter. What does matter is the steadfast mercy and love of God. And if people have rejected traditional religions, who can blame them? Don't tell me about the love of Jesus. Show me. That's why I wouldn't be too worried about God giving up on our nation just because it's abandoned its Christian roots. It might be a slippery slope fallacy to complain about a right-wing theocracy if prayer was restored to schools, but to continue sexual oppression of women and of those who want to live according to non-traditional lifestyles would mark a very different sort of territory, one that points to the restriction of another very vital value, sexual freedom. It's a whole other subject. We haven't talked about reproductive freedom yet. I wanted to cover it in the broader context of freedom and law generally as we've been doing here now, once we've covered the history of sexual oppression and repression. 
I can only trace a few key ideas here, but I think I've said enough at this point to make it clear that to live a life where awesomeness is optimized, we're going to be looking for a balance between personal liberty and optimal consequences. Optimal consequences both for individuals and for the societies we live in. Obviously, I want you to be free to do as you choose, but I don't want you to be free to hurt me or your neighbor. I care about us, too. That's why, in talking about reproductive freedom, we can't leave out whether or not a fetus should have any rights that might override a woman's freedom. Maybe that you'll conclude that they shouldn't have any rights after we've talked it through, but it's not a conversation that can be omitted if justice is fairness and maximized awesomeness really matters to you, as I assume it does. So that leaves us with a few sets of values in conflict that we're going to have to balance. In the next few episodes, we're going to spell out a meta-ethical system, a multiversal meta-theory of sex, religion, and justice. We'll see how freedom can be restrained by principles of justice while tolerating diverse religious viewpoints. We know we can't leave freedom completely untethered without endangering ourselves, but exactly how tethered should it be tethered, and what should we tether it to? Those questions are going to lead us through a quick breakdown of political and ethical philosophy. We'll start with two ideas that are introduced by Aristotle, functionalism and the golden mean of virtue. Then we'll touch on Kantian ethics after that, before moving on to Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Sartre, and Foucault. We'll also talk about Karl Marx and John Rawls. And before all said and done for season one, we'll have fully treated an assortment of women's issues and laid a framework for a system of ethics, economics, and justice that are unique to pomology, which we'll refer to as a pamelonomy. Now in season two, we're going to go even deeper than that and lighter at the same time as we start getting more people to participate and have more than solo blogcasts. We'll see how all that goes. Up until now, I've had very little support. Expect to see major revamps on the website and courses in Season 2. There should be some nice improvements, and we may even start advertising. Of course, we can't advertise until we have supporters. There's no money to advertise with. So, so far, nobody knows we're here. So we're going to need a cash injection of some sort pretty soon to get the ball rolling. Maybe that's where you could come in. We've got our Patreon site for those who want to contribute a few dollars a month, and there are sponsorships available. A sponsorship basically means co-branding. The sponsor pays to advertise, and we target the ads to both where we might find our own listener and reader prospects and where the sponsor will find customer prospects at the same time. You'll soon see how pamelonomies are connected to incubators, too. The Pomology Society will not only provide teaching in awesomeology like we've been doing here, but also incubate high-impact projects. As a 501c3, we'll support a strategic set of projects that help support one another. Now, I've spoken with you quite a bit about the counterchecker, as an example, in previous blogcasts, so I won't repeat all that here. We need to raise $1.4 million for that project, as a reminder. So far, we haven't raised any money at all. One reason for the slow start is that we have no money to advertise with. It all keeps coming back to that. We need to get the word out that we're here. It would help if we had a better platform of communication to begin with. That's where a second project we've been looking at is going to come in very useful. Let's talk about that. 
As you may know, I drive for Uber and Lyft to pay my bills. I've done over 30,000 rides between the two companies. I know a little bit about the driving industry. Well, it just so happens that I lead and participate in several rideshare driver groups online. And there seems to be unanimous support for the idea of beginning a driver-owned rideshare company. So we're in the process of developing a white paper to outline the facts behind what would make an optimal program to compete against Uber and Lyft. Before I close, I'm going to share just a few of the features here today. Let's start with the main pain points. Drivers aren't paid enough, point one. Riders are paying too much, point two. Shareholders are watching Uber and Lyft eat their profits away in an effort to gain market dominance. And point four, employees see the writing on the wall, so they're draining their companies. That's a reality right now. So here's the opportunity. Bring accountability back to shareholders by limiting ownership to drivers, riders, and delivery customers. Let the drivers have as many shares as the miles they drive, and passengers have their own class of shares based on their own miles driven as well. Delivery customers get their own separate class too, based on their purchase levels. Each group then gets to vote based on their quantity of shares when polls come out and elect board members. Each group has a direct ongoing input into what features the app and the service will provide. Cutting out the middleman raises driver pay and lowers passenger and delivery customer costs at the same time. With ongoing feedback, it gives each group exactly what they want. So that's the general idea. To get it started, the group that's already been started just needs to go viral. But unfortunately, social media doesn't do that for you. So here's our current need. A sponsor could pay to advertise the group and start an email list to spark the fire. Our goal is to have a million members in the group, then have each member pay $10 a month in member dues to raise cash for the startup. Once the money's been raised, then we'll build the app, beta test it, and immediately compete against Uber and Lyft and the other transportation network providers and delivery companies. So the program currently doesn't even have a name because we want the drivers to decide on that. What we need right now is actually pretty simple. We need some advertising dollars, bottom line, in every case I've been talking about. We could do that with one sponsor. Could that be you? Let me know. If you sponsor the Rideshare Co-op and we start the best transportation network company ever, every other program that the Bimology Society supports will be easy to begin because we'll have a huge group of people we can communicate through since we'll own the email list as its original sponsor. Now, I myself also will be able to do this work full time. That would be good for me been working 80 hours a week driving. Do you think I can be a little more productive if I had that 80 hours to work on the Bimology Society? So that's what I mean by the word strategic. It'll mean more content here. It'll mean more hours dedicated to the projects that we support. It'll also mean creating a platform for communication. It's vital. Up till now, hardly anyone's ever even heard of Pimology. Do you know how frustrating that is for me? That should give you a pretty good idea of our plans. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Did you put together the list of things that you'd like to do before you die, like I asked you to? I want to see your list. My list is at jamescarvin.com. Write down your list and send me the link. Imagine how much we could really help each other if we set our minds to it. Ciao. 
Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true.